Okay, let's look at God's Word this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. morning we'll look at the story of Naaman. Who knows the story of Naaman? Oh, look at them all. They've heard this sermon before. Well, hopefully I'll be able to give you something a little bit different to what you've heard before. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 14 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5. Read with me. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honourable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valour, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come up unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, and the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man thus sent unto me, sent unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so that when Elisha, Elisha, sorry, the, the man of God had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And in his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Once again, Father, we come before your throne thanking you for your word. Father, that we can trust every jot and every tittle, every word within it, every sentence. Father, we just thank you that you have preserved it in such a miraculous way that we can trust it for our very lives. Lord, we pray that your word would have an effect on us now. 
that it would do its work within our hearts, within our minds, that we would be more like you, that our minds would be renewed through this word, and that your spirit would work within our hearts. Father, we thank you once again for this time, and I pray that you would bless every needing heart here. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Naaman has been preached on probably, well, I won't venture to say a number, but it's a very common um, uh, sermon about salvation. Because leprosy is often, is often used in the Bible as a picture of sin and what it can do to a person's life. So the story of Naaman is a, is a, a wonderful uh, story about what salvation is about and the different aspects of salvation. How people in different positions actually do different things and um, how something as, as serious as a terminal illness like this, God has the power over, and if he has the power to heal something like leprosy, he has the power to actually cleanse us of our sin as well. Well, it illustrates the role that you and I can play in the gospel and in sharing that gospel of salvation. Um, it illustrates also um, one of the most subtlest of sins. Uh, the thing that's one of the sins that's most difficult to deal with, and this is the thing I want to focus on today, and that's pride. Pride is one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous sin in a person's life because it masquerades itself in many different ways and it leads to many other sins. So this morning I'd like to, as we look at the story, look at the different characters and what they do or what they don't do in the story. But what I'd like to focus on and what I will finish with today is the dangers of pride and what they do to a person. Because we nearly saw in this particular story that pride caused a person to throw away the salvation that was there right before their eyes. So let's look at verse 1. And it starts off by saying, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honourable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valour, but he was a leper. So who was Naaman? Well, Naaman, where it says the captain of the host, those hosts are his armies. So he was, in essence, a four or five star general. He was a general in the armies of the Syrian king. And he was in charge of a great deal of, of men. And it also says that he was a great man with his master. So not only did he have a high ranking position, but in the eyes of his own master, in the eyes of the king, the king saw him as a great man. The king had great respect for him. The king had elevated him. So he was an important man in his own country. The Bible says that he was an honourable man. And to be honourable means simply to be a man of your word, to do what you say you will do. So he was a trustworthy man. He was a man who kept his word. He was a man who was respected, not just, I suppose, in the military and from his king, but in a sense he was seen in his society as an honourable and trustworthy man. And it says here that by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Deliverance, that's an interesting one. Because it actually says, and it goes down a little bit further on, that he'd given Israel into, into these hands. So where they had fought wars, and this is, you'll see an example of where he's taken the, the, the Syrian, or sorry, the, the little uh, maid. 
that they were able to take captives out of Israel into Syria and, to, and make them their slaves, basically. So the Lord had given this man a great deal of success in his life. So much so that he, was, he even allowed this man to overtake God's own people. That's how, that's how successful he actually was. And it says that he was also a mighty man of valor. He was brave. He was a brave man. He, would, he was not the sort of guy, if you look at it, that would stand behind everyone else and send the other guys into battle. To be a man of valor himself meant that he was, he was happy to go in himself and do the job. He was a man with great courage. But despite all these fantastic accolades, if you look at it, how would you like to be called successful, you know, a great man, an honourable person, um, and have so much success that even the king of your country sees you as a, as a great person? You'd love to have it, wouldn't you? But it says that despite all these wonderful things, it finishes with these five words, but he was a leper. So despite all those things, the thing that really ruined the whole thing was that he had leprosy. Now, he was, now, leprosy was a terrible, terrible disease. still is a terrible disease. It's still found in the world. But it's basically a bacterial infection that causes your nervous system not to work properly so you don't feel pain and, and you start to, you start to um, your, your flesh starts to degrade as a result of different things that you don't feel. So you might have a cut. You don't feel the cut. It becomes infected and gangrene starts to sit in. You don't even feel what's going on. So part of the problem with, uh, with this type of sin is that you don't realise what's happening most of the time. And today we can treat the disease with, um, with different types of medication, but in Naaman's day, there was no medication. In fact, there was a death sentence to have leprosy. And it was something that was very visible on people as well. So it was something that, that happened on your flesh, so people would see it and it was, it was visible. But the, basic of, the basics of this, this disease is that apart from it slowly degrading your body to a point where you died, it was not treatable. It was, there was no hope once you had it. It would slowly progress um, and there was no hope for the person who had it. And this, the Bible says, is a picture of sin. Sin is a very deceptive type of sickness that, that man has. And in, in people's lives, you may have multiple success. You may be very successful. You may be very um, uh, privileged. You may, you may have a great reputation in this world. But despite all your, all your success, the Bible says that Every person has this particular disease and it's called sin. And it's not treatable by human standards. There is no cure for it through psychology or through the world's techniques. There is no, there is no way of removing its stain. Because in, and in the end, it will kill a person. The biggest failure that man has is sin. Bible says, tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, every person has this disease. And the problem with it is, 
is that it it makes a person utterly abhorrent. What God created in beauty, what God created in perfection, becomes corrupt in his eyes. And the Bible says that before we are saved, we were enemies of God, abhorrent to him, filled with sin and, and shame and everything else. And that's what this thing does. It makes something good ugly. Sin corrupts. And it corrupts from the inside out so it shows on the outside. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the hope that we have. That despite every one of us having this particular disease, that God has provided a cure. God has provided a way. And this story gives us such a beautiful picture of, of how God dealt with it. Because it says at the end that when he is washed in the river seven times, his, his skin comes up like the skin of a baby. Brand new. Look at verse 2 with me. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captives out of the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Now this little maid didn't get a chance to tell the um, Naaman directly herself of this, this news that she had, this information that she had. But she was able to tell it to her mistress. And then someone else heard that conversation and went back to Naaman and told him. Now, get this. This little maid, the Bible says, had been captured in war by the Syrians and dragged back. So she was essentially what? A slave to them. She was essentially a slave. And it calls her little, which is, which is an interesting one. I'm not sure if that little means stature. Little is in young or... Regardless, the term little means that she wasn't great. She wasn't noteworthy. She wasn't, didn't have a great you know, uh, reputation or, a, uh, or a, a big standing in the community. She was a slave who'd been captured from Israel and, had, and was now in the house working as a servant for this family. And she obviously found out that Naaman had this disease. Yeah. I look at that situation. What would we have done if you had been captured by someone and found yourself working in, as a servant for a foreign family? I don't know whether I would have done what she did. This little Jewish servant could have looked at a situ situation and allowed hatred to conceal what she really knew. She could have said, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. This guy deserves everything he gets. He came and attacked our people and I'm, I'm now in his country working for him when I would rather be back at home. She could have done that, but she didn't. She could have looked at the infidels, people of no faith, who worshipped a different God to her that had captured her. She could have disdained them for their ethnicity. 
for not having the same customs that they had. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the Syrians had different customs than the, than the Israelites had. Could have disdained them for their idolatry, for their worship of another god. But she chose rather to overlook these things. Not to allow pride to cloud her judgment. And instead, she chose to be a blessing to her captors. A blessing. On top of this, she may have looked on her position as a, a foreign, little, female slave and said, I can't do anything. I better, not, I better keep my mouth closed. And for fear, she may have kept quiet. But instead, this little maid chose to share good news that she, that she had in her heart with her captors. And what's the message for us? Well, it's actually quite simple here, isn't it? We've, we have a calling as the children of God in this world. We may be small in number. You may not have the best reputation in this world. You may not be in a high position of authority. But the message we have we need to share. The message we have can be a blessing to those who are even our enemies. We carry a message with the potential to save people from their sins. We simply need to speak the truth in confidence and with love, like this little maid. who said, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet. She says that with a fair bit of conviction and excitement. Look at that. Look at that verse in verse 3. Look what's at the end of the word Samaria. What do you see there? It's an exclamation mark. Did you also have an exclamation mark there? It's there for a reason. Now, if someone, if there's an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence, does it mean she said it a bit like, uh, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that was in Samaria? She said this thing with, with great conviction and excitement. There's an exclamation mark there. Because she wanted him to be saved. She wanted him to be healed. Her captor, this foreigner, this idolater, she wanted him to be healed. Do we speak with the same passion when we share the gospel? Do we have the same excitement when we tell people about Jesus? Now, she had this excitement about the prophet that was in Israel. How much excitement do we have when we share the good news about Jesus Christ with people? Do we have, do we say things in the same way? Would God, that you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you can be healed of your sin today. You could start a brand new life and you'll be saved to heaven. What if she had made an excuse? 
What if she allowed pride to steal her lips and to hold on to what she knew? And what if we do the same? What if when we see people around us that we don't particularly like, we allow that to stop us from sharing the gospel? What about if we don't or if we fail to speak because of fear? What does it say about us and the message we carry? Warren Wearsby uh, made an interesting quote. He says, God made us and God is able to empower us to do whatever he calls us to do. Would you agree with that? Okay. Denying that we can accomplish God's work is not humility. It's the worst kind of pride. So we believe that God has created us and enabled us to do his work. So if God calls you to go and do something, he'll equip you to do it. We believe that. Scripture teaches that over and over and over again. So if any child of God comes and says, I'm not able, I don't have it within me, what are you saying? You're essentially saying it's a criticism not of you. It's a criticism of God. And it's a criticism where you're placing yourself above God. Where you're saying, God, even though your word says that, I don't believe it. So false humility, where people say, I can't do anything for the Lord, is not humility. It's not. It's actually pride masquerading as humility. The problem that we have sometimes as Christians is that when God calls us to go and do things, we don't do it, not because we don't believe God has equipped us, it's because we fear. We allow fear to motivate us rather than the love of Christ to constrain us. Now this little maid by herself in a foreign land among a foreign people captured and everything had the courage to speak the truth had the conviction to say the truth we should have the same conviction and the same excitement let's continue verse 5 and the king of Syria said go to go and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel and he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter has come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. It came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man has sent un send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, you see how he seeketh a quarrel with me. Naaman, Naaman must have gone to his king with, with this special request. Once he found this information, he went to his king and he said, King, I found out something. There is possibly a guy in Israel who can heal me of my leprosy. King, can I go? And his, his king said, go, go. And what I'll do, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel and I'll make sure you have safe passage there. And I'll make sure that when you get there, the king of Israel knows. Well, look, there were two separate countries, understand, okay? So you couldn't send the general 
of your army of Syria just walking into the, into the middle of Israel, wandering around looking for this prophet, could you? So the logical thing to do when the king gave him permission is for the king to send him to the king. And say, king, I'm sending my general to you because he's coming there to get healed of this leprosy. And he sends him with a fair amount of, of goods. Sends him with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. I mean, he's sick. And he's probably had a fairly sizable entourage with them as well. A chariot and, and horses and everything. It's funny. So when he arrives at the king's palace, the letter's handed to the king. The king of Israel reads the, the letter. And how does he take it? This guy's threatening me. This is an open threat. He immediately becomes suspicious of this letter. That it was a, this is a setup, <laughs> and he says, who, "Who am I? Am I God? Why is he sending this guy to me for? He's doing it on purpose because he knows that if I don't heal him and I send him back the same way, that I've done it on purpose. This guy's looking for trouble." So the guy starts ripping his clothes, which is a pretty big deal when you start ripping when a king starts ripping his clothes. Now, if the story ended here, then a great opportunity would have been lost, wouldn't it? But the king had stopped at that particular place and said, this guy's looking for a fight. I'm, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with it. And if that was the end of the story, what would have happened? Naaman would have had to go back to his hometown, back to Syria, and we wouldn't have this wonderful story here. The king was obviously ignorant, though, of the existence of his own prophet and what he was capable of. The king was ignorant. He didn't come to his mind that this man had been sent to him so he could send him to the prophet. It showed a distinct lack of faith and knowledge on, on behalf of the king. The captured little maid knew about the prophet. The little maid knew about the prophet, but the big king had no idea what was going on. He didn't click to him. And the king misconstrued the intention of the other king, and misunderstanding coupled with ignorance would have been to blame. You know something? There's a story in here for us. There's a message in here for us about this king. You see, we can't properly lead a person to Christ if we're ignorant of his word, can we? We need to understand God's word in order to properly direct people to the right place. Do you understand? The king didn't had failed in that particular mission. He should have looked at the situation and said, "Oh, Elisha, Elisha can he, can, we can send him to to Elisha." And that would have been a great opportunity for him to declare and and cause God to be glorified. But instead he looked at it from his own perspective rather than God's. He looked at it from his own ignorance and didn't realise the obvious thing to do. And sometimes we miss the obvious thing to do. Sometimes God puts a person in front of us and he wants us to speak and share what we know. But I'll tell you now, sometimes we miss the opportunity. And sometimes we miss the opportunity 
because we're ignorant. We don't have the knowledge that God wants us to have. We don't use it. We're not listening when God is talking to us. We're too busy, wrapped up in our own little world like the king was, worried about he, that he was being threatened or that, that something else was going on in the background, being suspicious of someone else. If you're ignorant of his word, then you will most likely see a threat where God is opening an opportunity. And you'll respond with fear rather than love. Because the Bible says that love, perfect love, casteth out fear. So when, when you're in tune with God, when you and I properly love, and the Bible says are constrained by the love of Christ, compelled or pushed by it, then when God presents an opportunity in front of us, we won't run the other way because we see there's a threat to us. We'll look at the opportunity and say, God's opening the door for me. Let me tell him. Let me direct him to Christ. Let me show him where he needs to go. Read. Study the word. Live the word in your life. Be attuned to God. Because he will open doors for you. We often pray for things and we see how many answers to prayers over and over again. But you know, God does a lot more than answer prayers that are prayed behind his pulpit. In your life and my life, there are so many things that God is doing around us that we often fail to see. How wonderful the story and the mosaic that he's, that he's building up and, and painting. God is working all around us. He's working within us and around us. And, and he calls us to live moment by moment with him and for him. Not once a week on a Sunday morning. He wants to live moment by moment. We need to be aware of what's happening around us. And we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. We need to be listening as well as speaking. It's great to speak. It's great to talk. But it's important to listen. It's important to be observant. The king failed. But the little maid didn't fail. And we shouldn't fail. Verse 8. And it was so. When Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha somehow heard of the king's grief, of the king's problem over here. And he, he inquired, discovered why. And he told the king to go and tell um, Naaman to go. For the, This is where he had to go for the solution to his problem, which was him, himself. So verse 9 says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, thou shalt be clean. <laughs> it's a funny situation. I mean, Elisha, imagine the house that Elisha lived in. I don't suspect it was a double-story house. It wasn't a palace. So he's probably living in a small, in a very small, humble sort of home. And all of a sudden there arrived chariot, horses, an entourage of servants, everything else. Park, park at the front of his house. What would you do? 
would you not go out of your house and say, welcome? And watch, it doesn't bother. <laughs> it just stays inside its house. There's a Syrian general there with all, with all, this, all these peoples and money and, and uh, it says 10 changes of clothes, which is, which is interesting. Maybe it was because of his leprosy. But they're all there at Elijah's doorstep and they're there for a reason. And Elijah knows it. It's not as if he doesn't know. He's the one who actually told him, told him to actually come. So Elijah just stays in his house. Maybe he was watching a good episode of My Kitchen Rules or something. He sends his servant out. He sends his servant. And, and the ser- he sends him out with a message. He says, and he says, go and tell him to go and wash on the Jordan seven times. And he'll be, he'll be, he'll be fine. So Elisha's servant delivers the message. Simple message. Nothing too complicated to this uh, Syrian general. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And look at the reaction. But Naaman was wroth. That's angry. That's anger. And he went away. That's it. He turned his, uh, his chariot around and he was heading back the other way and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. First mistake. First assumption. And stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. So he thought he wanted Elijah to come out with, uh, with his, uh, maybe with his entourage as well and call upon God and there to be some sort of a miraculous event with a lot of fanfare and fireworks. And then he says, not Abana and, and Farpa, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So he was wroth, he went away in a rage, he was upset. Elisha didn't bother to come out. I mean, this is the guy, this is the guy who had fought battles against Israel and taken captives away with him. This is the guy who had, Naaman was a guy who had the king of Israel scared, shaking in his boots about what was going on. He was a respected person. He had he bought along with him half a half a bank worth of money. He had great wealth, prestige. And now this little prophet in this little country town, in a little house, doesn't have the common courtesy to come out and even say hello. He's offended. He was deeply offended. He was not just offended at, at Elisha's lack of show and, and, and pomp and ceremony and courtesy to him, but he was even offended at the actual answer that he want, that, that he was given, the solution to his problem. I go and wash seven times in the in the, the Jordan River, the river over there. He was offended at the actual answer. In essence, in Naaman's heart. Pride was now standing in the way of his salvation. And he was nearly lost the, the full opportunity. He t- turned his chair around. He was going away in a rage. 
So it says here, and his servants, in verse 13, his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, would, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came upon him, came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman had to thank God for his servants who rebuked him. He said, what are you doing? You've got this, this wonderful opportunity over here. If he'd said to you, go and climb the highest mountain and bring back for me one, one flower from the top and I'll do some amazing thing with an incantation, wouldn't you have done it? Of course you would have, because it would have added to his prestige, you see. Naaman's servants rebuked, in their wisdom, their master. But to dip himself seven times in a river that he had absolutely no regard. It's like, imagine if I said to you, go, go and dip seven times in the Maribyrnong River. You probably think twice about going there in the first place because you think that there are certain parts you don't want to be dipping yourself. He probably thought exactly the same. He had probably the same disdain for the, the Jordan River as you would think of a local river around here. But the message, the rebuke from his servants broke through. It had, it had the desired effect. They said to him, if, if they'd asked you to do something great, you would have done it. He's asking you to do something simple. What's stopping you from going to do it? So there's an obvious thing that happened over here. He must have repented. He changed his mind about the whole thing at the rebuke of his servants. And he went and he humbled himself because he had to humble himself, you see. He had been offended by, by Elisha. He'd been given not the type of uh, solution he wanted, but in order for him then to go and dip himself into the Jordan, he had to, he had to repent of two things. One, his offence at Elijah, Elisha, and two, the solution that was given to him. The message from his servants broke through. He realised his folly and his own destructive behaviour because of his pride and he humbled himself. Put aside his offence and he simply obeyed. So Naaman believed the message. He believed what was told him. And as a result of that belief, he went and followed and obeyed and washed himself in the Jordan seven times. And when he was finished washing, his leprosy was completely gone. His skin was like that of a, of a baby. His faith, in a sense, had made him whole. He'd been given something that he didn't deserve by God. He'd been given grace. And despite those barriers and obstacles, God found a way to navigate through those. You know, some believe that their own path is better than God's path. It's a more spectacular one, you see. God says, 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's way too simple. It's offensive to some. Actually, it's offensive to all. Because it says that you can't save yourself. There is no wondrous work that you can do. There isn't any, any type of, uh, of penance that you can pay. Because I know that there are, coming from my background, that certain people do penance thinking that they're making up for their sin. Or that by their penance, they'll, God will hear them once again. I know there are people who walk on their knees up, up hills until their knees are bloodied so that God will hear a prayer from them. Or if they've done some sin, they'll try to make up for it by saying how many prayers over and over and over again. God is like that. God offers salvation as a gift to people who don't deserve it. And even now we still don't deserve it. God's if we've received salvation, we still there's, there's still nothing in us to deserve more and more and more grace that he continues to give us. God says this of Israel. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. There is a righteousness that comes from having a relationship with God. But if we set about to go out to go and create our own righteousness, then it, you can't accept the righteousness of God. You see, God never sends anyone away empty. Do you believe that? You go to him, except those that are full of themselves. This is the problem with pride. This is the problem that happened a, a few times in this particular story. You see, turn to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 with me. And we'll look at some of the, the characteristics of pride. Well, the results of pride, which were evident in this particular story. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride, Proverbs 13.10, Cometh contention. What's contention? Arguments, anger, wrath, disagreements. By pride cometh contention. That's true. People, people's pride gets them into trouble. It's where people are fighting for their position and for their and the pride that stirs them up that arguments happen. And the problem is that pride will get you into trouble, but pride will also keep you there as well. Pride will stop you from repenting, from saying sorry, from backing down, even if you know you're probably wrong. It's pride that does that. 
Naaman's pride caused him to become angry, contentious, when he wasn't given the proper respect that he, that he thought he deserved. So he became angry and wrath. Pride causes contention. It causes contention in our daily lives. It causes contention in the church. And the other way, the other thing it does, go to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, we've all read this particular verse. And sometimes we've pointed at people and said, pride's going to go before destruction. He's headed for a fall, huh? when it's so obvious. But the thing that pride does actually blinds you to what's coming up next. Because if a person was proud and saw the destruction that was coming their way, they'd change. They'd do something different. But it doesn't. Naaman's pride caused him to become so irritated and so angry that he was about to make a decision that would ultimately lead to his death. Weigh those two things up. He was offended because he didn't come out to see him or death. Yet he turned his chariot around and was heading off. You see, pride blinds the eyes of a person to the dangers of the choices that they're making. It blinds them to what's coming up next. That's why when you are ever in an argument, never make a choice. Never make a choice or a decision when you're in the middle of an argument with someone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because when you're in the middle of an argument with someone, if you make a choice at that particular time, it's your pride that's making the choice. And people, uh, I, get, I get surprised sometimes, people make choices in the midst of emotional turmoil rather than making a decision after they've cooled down. This fellow had made a decision in the midst of his anger and his wrath that would have cost him his life. We look at it and say, there's no logic to it. It's not logical that he would throw away his life and not just put up with the, with the offence, you know what I mean, and just move on from it. But do we not do the same? Don't we do the same sometimes? When we choose to cut off someone, or we choose to respond in a certain way, or we choose to make a decision about doing something because that person offended me, or, or this didn't go my way, so I'm going to do this now. And it's destructive to yourself and to the relationship. Pride blinds the eyes of the dangers of making certain choices. The same is true of mankind in general. Mankind walks this life with the pride in his heart, all the while being blissfully unaware 
that there is a reckoning to come. Totally blinded. Their pride has blinded them to the existence of a God who will judge the living and the dead by the works that they do. And what makes it more difficult is people who know the gospel, who know about Christianity, who know about Christ, and who agree with it intellectually, but then still go and do make the, the wrong choice and choose not to follow him. Or they follow him just by word rather than with the heart. The world is full of these people. But Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 Actually, turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. Isaiah 2, 11 says, The lofty looks of a man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low there will come a day when the proud the arrogant the ones who were lifted up within themselves will be all humbled that's why the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every proud person who denies Christ now, who says that he is nothing but a, but a, a two-bit salesperson or a magician or that he didn't even exist, will one day be face-to-face -face with him. And the Bible says that their pride and their arrogance will be brought low and they will bow the knee to him in recognition of who he is. Pride is deceiving. It presents a false image also of our condition. Before we're saved and even after we're saved. Before we're saved, it totally blinds us to, to our state. But after we, we're saved, it still tries to play the part. It still tries to infiltrate. The flesh loves the pride. It loves it. It loves to be lifted up. The Christian, be careful with pride. Be careful that it's not masquerading as something else. Because pride is very subtle with the way it operates. Sometimes we know that the heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things. So sometimes we think we're doing something in a humble spirit. But the motivation is maybe something else. Maybe we want the recognition. Maybe we want that pat on the back. Maybe we want to show someone else how good we actually are. Maybe we've, we feel offended, so we need to teach someone a lesson. But in the back of our minds, we're doing something good. Be careful. Pride is deceptive. It's deceptive. It presents a false image of a person's condition. It can blind them to what the reality really is. There is a, a particular um, 
verse in Obadiah about the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. The Edomites were not very friendly with Israel. And when Israel went through difficult times, the Edomites were clapping their hands and happy about it. When they were defeated, the, the Edomites were happy. When Israel found themselves in a, in a ditch and found themselves in a very difficult situation, the Edomites took advantage of them. The Edomites, the Bible says, lived, lived high in, in the hills, the high in mountains. And God pronounces this judgment on them. He says, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. The Edomites thought themselves to be untouchable. No one could come near them. They were fortified. They were safe. They were proud. And when something bad happened to someone else, when, when bad things happened to Israel, they clapped their hands and rejoiced. God brought them down. How many Edomites do you know today? They don't exist. We need to be careful that we don't rejoice at other people's misfortunes. And the thing we need to be careful of in a fundamentalist Baptist church is that we don't use the law of God to judge people when we don't know their situation. Because the devil will use that against us. Yes, we, 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 we believe in separation, true? Separation is probably the most misunderstood doctrine. We believe in separation. We don't believe in cooperating with ecumenism and those sorts of things. But we need to be very, very careful that our doctrine, that our, our, the amount of knowledge that we have in God's word, the confidence we have in God's word, becomes a stumbling block for our pride toward those who don't know as much as us. Guys, we talk about it all the time. We're, we're surrounded by people in charismatic churches and, and all these different churches and we listen to them and our heart breaks when we, when we hear what they say about God's word, how, how little understanding they have. But we need to be careful, and myself included, that we don't look down upon them in a sense. We don't make fun of them. We don't clap our hands and say, look, you, you fool. <coughs> our hearts should break for what's going on around us. It should, it really should. Sometimes we, we can be a little bit flippant about it. So pride can blind us to our condition. It can blind us to the the result of the choices we're making. It can lead us into contention and anger and bitterness between people. But it does one thing in particular. Psalm 10.4. Psalm 10.4 says, 
the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Pride will stop a man from seeking after God, even when he is the most obvious need in that person's life. Pride will put the individual at the centre of the universe, always. It will put you and it will put me at the centre of our own universe, with everyone else revolving around us. And if they don't do it the way I want, I'm going to be offended. And if they don't grant me the courtesy that, they, that I deserve, I'll be offended. But if you're at the centre of the universe, then God isn't. It's a problem. Our lives should revolve around God, the Lord, not around ourselves. We are not the centre of the universe. The Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God, not seek ourselves, not seek our own. Because pride will always cause us to seek our own. And if we're seeking our own, you and I will be offended. The things that people do, that they don't do, that they say, whatever it is. Someone once said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. You need to be careful that we're always looking up. And that's why Habakkuk says, chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. There's the opposite. Pride or faith? God wants us to live by faith. And faith has no room for pride. Because faith has an object. And you have to look up for that object. And that object is Jesus Christ. Our first step of faith was to trust him. And to humble ourselves before him. It was a rejection of our pride. It was a rejection of ourself at that time. And an open declaration that we were now dependent upon God. We said that openly. We can't save ourselves. You were, I was your creation, God. I am your creation. I can't save myself. I've put myself in this mess. Only you can save me, my creator. I am helpless. It was our declaration of dependence. And this is the attitude God wants us to live day by day by day. We should never get to the point where pride begins to well up again inside us as Christians. There's no room. There's no room for pride in a Christian's life. We are to continue to reject it and to continue to keep an eye out for it because it is deceptive and it is subtle. We are to not only look up at God, but the amazing thing is the Bible says that we are to continue to look up at each other. I'm meant to look up to you as your servant. That's why Philippians says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other 
better than themselves. Don't let this platform and the fact that I'm a few inches above you make you think that I'm any better than you. My goal as your servant is to look up to you, is to encourage you to go even higher. And your goal is the same for everyone else here as well. We are to esteem one another higher always than ourselves. The Lord would have us humble ourselves before him and before each other to serve one another as Christ did with us. To be like the little maid in the Syrian's home who even though maybe that family didn't deserve what they got, she still chose to be a blessing. She sought to be a benefit to those around her. Where is our pride today? Do you struggle with it? Do you realise it's there? Do you understand its ways and its means? Is there something for you to do this morning before you leave this place with respect to your pride? The Bible says that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he shall lift us up. And I'll close with this, this poem today. I don't normally close with a poem. Do I? The last time I did a poem. A long time ago. But I've only chosen two. Are they called stanzas? I don't even know what they're called. Are they called stanzas, those things? By William Knox. Only two, okay? Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Who knows this one? Anyone read, read this one? Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Like a swift fleeting meteor, a fast flying cloud, a flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, man passeth from life to his rest in the grave. Tis the wink of an eye, it is the draught of a breath, from the blossom of health to the paleness of death, from the gilded saloon to the beer and the shroud, oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? God bless you. Thank you.